We've been working through the book of Revelation, uh, if you've just joined us or uh, if you've taken the opportunity to sleep while we've been preaching, uh, the book of Revelation written toward the end of the first century. And as we've been working slowly through the book of Revelation, I've also been citing passages from a very famous letter from the governor of the region just north of uh, where Revelation was written to, uh, by Pliny, the governor of the region, uh, to Emperor Trajan. It's from about 15 years, 10 or 15 years after the book of Revelation was written and gives us extraordinary insight into the early Roman attempt to curb the Christian movement. I've read several passages. Here are uh, two key passages and I think I'll, um, by the end of the series or some, sometime soon anyway, print out the whole letter for you including Trajan's reply, which is hilarious. Pliny writes to Emperor Trajan, For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second or third time with a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. There have been others similarly fanatical, who are Roman citizens, whom you can't kill on the spot. I have entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. It is reported to me that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn. Let's just pause there. Church before dawn. Why? because it had to be secret. On a fixed day, and sung antiphonally a hymn to Christ as God. Antiphonally. You remember what antiphonally means? That's where this side goes, Kumbaya, my Lord. And this side goes, Kumbaya. Pretty much. <laughs> they sing to each other a hymn to Christ as God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. Terrible stuff. This made me decide it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. I have therefore postponed any further examination and hasten to consult you. Trajan writes back a few months later and basically says, well done, carry on, so long as they are proven to be Christians. Kill them. The extraordinary thing is, we know exactly how Christians in this period, in this place, we're being urged to respond to this treatment from the Romans. Because we have a letter, I don't know if I've ever quoted here before, from this man, Ignatius. You may have never heard of him, but he was a very important Christian leader in exactly the period of Pliny, whose name was on the list of persons sent to Rome for trial. Ignatius wrote letters to the churches uh, on his way to Rome, where a year later he would in fact be executed. 
And we have these precious letters. It's um, one of a, about a dozen letters we have from this period immediately after the New Testament. This letter is to the Ephesians, the same area where Revelation was written to. Pray continually for the rest of humankind that they may find God. For there is hope of their repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters. And let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. Gracious mission amidst awful persecution was the default mode for many Christians in this period. And part of what made this gracious resilience possible was the book of Revelation, written to this very region just 15 years before this terrible outbreak of persecution. The Apostle John himself uh, had been exiled from Ephesus to the island of Patmos by Roman officials who just wanted him out of the way. And he writes the book of Revelation to the churches of Turkey as this persecution is beginning. And from there, he writes a very simple message, actually, despite how complex some of the scenes in Revelation are. The very simple message of the book of Revelation could be summarized this way. If the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord of the universe, those who trust His loving sacrifice and entrust themselves to His way of sacrificial love will be eternally vindicated. And he drives this message home to the churches of what we call Turkey, not with a simple theological argument, but as we've seen over and over again via the literary genre called apocalyptic, a Jewish style of writing used usually in anxious times, to unveil vital, universal truths through coded imagery. And boy, oh boy, will we get some coded imagery in the passages that we'll soon read. The great thing about apocalyptic is not only that um, your enemies have no clue what you're talking about or what you're on, um, but it means you can ignite the imagination and use the craziest symbols to drive home very simple theological points, which the 15-year-old in the church in Ephesus or Pergamum completely understood in this period, although it requires a bit of work on our part. Well, our passage today is another pause in proceedings. Uh, do you remember two weeks ago uh, that between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seal on a giant scroll... There was a pause, a long interlude in chapter 7, 
um, where we were told about 144,000 Israelites who were saved, and then a great multitude from every tribe and nation who were saved. Uh, There, between the sixth and seventh seals, is this pause to remind us, amidst all the calamity, the people of God are safe. And when that pause is over, the seventh seal on this scroll is broken, and we're suddenly introduced not to the end of the story, but to seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets sound their way through chapters 8 and 9, which we'll only skirt over in prep uh, for what we're about to hear. Each uh, trumpet, if you just flip back to um, chapter 8, heralds a dramatic image of judgment now coming on the world. So the first trumpet is in chapter 8, 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and so on. Look at the next verse, verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, etc. Verse 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet and on it goes right through to the sixth trumpet. Way over in chapter 9, 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice Coming from the four horns and the golden altar that is before God, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, which unleashes great judgment. Um, I should say, these are not descriptions of actual judgment. Apocalyptic literature doesn't work like that. It uses these dramatic, frightening images just to represent warnings of judgment. That's, I think, important to understand. But um, by the end of the trumpets, uh, uh, between the, the sixth and seventh trumpet, we get our pause, but we also learn what our pause is about because after the sixth trumpet, the sixth warning, the world still doesn't turn back to God. Uh, glance down at chapter 9, 20. After six terrible warnings... The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magical arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. All of which raises the question that our pause today answers. The question is this, what will it take to bring the world to repentance? The six trumpets didn't have any effect. What will it take? And our pause is designed to give us the answer. And just as the pause between the sixth and seventh seals told us about the safety of God's people, this pause between the sixth and seventh trumpets tells us about the mission of God's people to this world. And it comes in two simple scenes. In chapter 10, we learn of John's mission to the world, to lead it to repentance. And then in chapter 11, we're introduced to the mysterious two witnesses who have a mission to the world. And only after this pause which goes through the whole of chapter 10 and 11, only after this pause do we get the seventh trumpet at the very end of of chapter 11. So that's the plan, John's mission and the mission of the two witnesses. 
Let's read Revelation 10. Thank you, Neil. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the, la- in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So when I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We can be brief. We're introduced to a spectacular angel in verse 1. He is called Mighty. This draws attention to this angel. We've seen many angels throughout. This one is a mighty angel. And you bet uh, he's giant, okay? He's so big, verse 2 tells us, then he planted his right foot on the sea, try and picture this, and his left foot on the land. And you might think, but if his right foot's in the sea, he's going to be sort of lopsided, isn't he? No, he's so big, the sea is just like splashing against the sandal. That's, that's the image. This is, this is a new thing. This is a giant angelic being that straddles land and sea. And I think that geographical reference is significant, deliberate, because next week, when we get to chapters 12 and 13, we will meet a beast that comes out of the sea and another beast that comes out of the land. But back here, this angel straddles both sea and land. I think the point is, Everything is under the divine oversight. Not everything is revealed to us. In fact, um, John hears in chapter, uh, verse 4, seven thunders speaking, and he picks up his pen and he's about to write, and he's told, don't write that. And I think the point is there are some things we don't know, some things that are with, uh, withheld from us. But God knows everything. Everything is known to him. He straddles land and sea. The angel's massive, but he holds a little scroll. Not the giant scroll of chapter 5, the little one, right? Just sitting in the the hand. 
And in verse 2, it's just described very simply. He's massive, uh, but he's holding a little scroll that lay open in his hand, which is an offer to John. What's the scroll? The scroll is just the message that John preaches, which is why he has to eat it in verse 9. We're told, uh, I asked him to give me a little scroll, and he said, take it and eat it. It's in his mouth. It's in his mouth. This is just the gospel, which John, the author of Revelation, has been preaching for 60 years, ever since he himself saw the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the news that the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord. But it's bittersweet, verse 10, bittersweet. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again and many to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's a beautiful message. God Almighty debasing himself on a cross for our sins. Friends, if that is true, it is the most beautiful news imaginable. But it causes trouble for those who remain faithful to it, for those like John who bear witness to it. He, after all, is on the island of Patmos. His gospel mission is bittersweet. I've told you before about the woman I met at a conference for underground pastors in China. And she told uh, the group in tears that her husband had been imprisoned for two years in a hard labor camp simply for preaching in a public place. But she had just heard before arriving at the conference that her husband had kept on preaching in the labor camp and, I kid you not, had led two of the prison officials to faith in Jesus Christ. And she wept for joy. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. And what's true of John's mission in chapter 10 is also true of the mission of the mysterious two witnesses in chapter 11. And a spoiler alert, the two witnesses are a picture of the church in its bittersweet mission. Chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. 
Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, There was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe had passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. John is told to measure the temple in Jerusalem, there in verse 1. Get a measuring rod, go measure the temple of God. Now, the temple had been destroyed 30-odd years before John had this vision, right? We know that the Romans destroyed the temple in August AD 70. So, this is obviously... Symbolic. Everyone knew the temple had been destroyed. In fact, by John's period, um, many, many coins uh, celebrated the Roman victory uh, over the Jewish temple. In fact, both the temple and the city are symbolic here. Uh, Verse 8, you can see, uh, actually says you can think of this city figuratively as Sodom, a place of terrible injustice and sexual immorality. Or you can think of it, it says, as Egypt, a place famous for its dark arts and its physical um, brutality. Or you can think of it as the place where Jesus was crucified, in other words, uh, Jerusalem. The picture is of a tiny sanctuary of true believers huddled together amidst a great city full of tyranny and unbelief. The sanctuary and the people are measured. Verse 1 actually says you measure the temple, the altar, with its worshippers. Okay, so there's some measuring going on here. What does this mean? It partly means ownership. You know, here is God uh, laying his claim on his people, on his sanctuary, as it were. The way you might um, measure out the rooms of a house that you're thinking of, of purchasing. But I think it's more than that. I think it's a way of saying God's people are utterly distinct from the pagan world. They are measured off from the rest of the world, even measured off from the outer court of the temple, which is being trampled by the Gentiles, it says. Now, I know this might conjure up an image of the church as a holy huddle, you know, completely distinct from the world. But in a sense, that's exactly right. The Christian community is a distinct community 
with defining doctrines and defining ethics that are non-negotiable. Um, to get nerdy just for a moment, uh, there was a very influential study uh, a couple of decades ago by Wayne Meeks of Yale University um, called The First Urban Christians, and it, really important analysis of the kind of sociological and historical factors at play in that very first century. And a central conclusion of Meeks was that a decisive factor in the miraculous expansion of early Christianity was its sharp definition of itself over and against the Roman world, combined with its openness to anyone who wanted to join the redefinition. Two things together. Sharp definition over and against the world, but also an openness. The way Meeks put it is he described early Christianity as having very high walls and open gates. High walls, open gates. And both were crucial for the mission. Coincidentally, just on Wednesday... Uh, Tim Keller, my favorite Christian public intellectual, spoke on this very topic uh, to British church leaders and parliamentarians in the British Parliament. He was asked to address the topic, what can Christians do for 21st century society? You can read this transcript online. His, his answer is basically, stand apart from culture or risk being ineffective. It's very powerful the way he, he puts it. It isn't watered-down Christianity that changes the world. Mm -mm. It's concentrated Christianity that changes the world. It's a Christianity precisely measured with strict definitions, radically different from the world, high walls, and yet, and yet... Very willing, open gates to anyone who wants to join. I think everywhere in the world where the church is growing, it's a very tightly defined kind of Christianity. It isn't the very flexible, liberal churches around the world that are growing. It isn't. It's the very high-walled Christianity that maintains the openness. Well, the rest of the scene sets mission and persecution in parallel. And it'd be lovely to notice this together. So in verse 2, notice that um, the outer court's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. All right, 42 months. That's three and a half years. What does that mean? But notice, will you, that God appoints two missionaries for exactly the same time period in verses 3 and 4. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, which here just means preach, for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, 1,260 days is 42 months, which is three and a half years. And you might go, well, so what? So what? Well, seven is the number of wholeness throughout the book of Revelation. Three and a half just says, this ain't the whole story. This is a portion of the story. But notice, both persecution and mission 
They overlap. They're in the same time period. They go together. But neither is the whole story. Why? Because the kingdom will come. And when the kingdom comes, persecution and tyranny are overthrown and mission is no more. For there will come a day when God's amnesty with the world will end. There will be no persecution and no mission. But until then, in the three and a half years that we all live in before the coming kingdom, mission and persecution often go together. Verse 4 is where we discover that the two witnesses represent the church, in case you're wondering. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Lampstands, oh, we've heard that before, haven't we? Yes, we have. In fact, in the opening vision of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 20, we get this really nice key. It says, the lampstands are the churches. I mean, that's just John easing us in a little bit, right? That's just like for the dummies. The lampstands are the churches. So here, these two witnesses are the lampstands. Ah, well, we know they must represent churches, but they're also olive trees. Hmm. And you suddenly think, okay, where are the olive trees in Revelation? There aren't any. Uh, So, of course, you begin to think of your Old Testament. And everyone who first got this must have been thinking, Zechariah 4.3, where olive trees, of course you were, where olive trees, uh, actually in more passages than this, are um, are a symbol of the leaders of God's people. All right. So the two witnesses are both the leaders of God's people and God's people, the church. I think what we have here is a picture of the church and its leaders together in mission. John and his churches. Why two witnesses? Surely it would be simpler if there were one. Or seven, that'd be cooler. That'd be nice apocalyptic symbolism. Why two? I think simply because of the Old Testament legal principle um, outlined in many places, including Deuteronomy 19, that testimony is only valid if given on the basis of at least two witnesses. What we have here are pictures of the church going about its powerful mission in the world. And boy, is it powerful. Verse 5, I'm sure you were creeped out by this when it was read. If anyone tries to harm them, the two witnesses, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. You may be thinking, maybe thinking ah, I don't want to be involved in that mission. I want to love people. I want to serve people. This is just a picture. In Revelation, whenever you hear of something coming out of the mouth, right, you, you've got to remember, ah, it's the gospel. Just like the great big sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth earlier. right? It's just the gospel uh, that he preached, just his word. Here, it's just just a reference to the gospel being the thing that will overturn anyone who opposes it. There's no getting around the gospel. It's the most powerful thing. When you speak of Jesus, you're speaking fire. They can also do crazy things in verse 6, like shut up the heavens, make the oceans blood, and bring plagues on the earth at will. If we had time, I'd show you that each of these has an Old Testament background. We don't have time. The, the point, though, is these are just pictures of judgment. Pictures of the preaching of judgment. Because judgment is part of the gospel, isn't it, friends? That God sees everything, 
and he is bringing judgment on the world, but Jesus has borne the judgment we deserve on the cross so that anyone who turns to him can escape judgment and anyone who rejects the call will indeed face judgment. The point of all of this imagery is that what we are doing in trying to take the gospel to Roseville and beyond may seem some days mundane, unsuccessful. But it is cosmic and eternal. It is powerful. It is the difference between everlasting life and everlasting judgment for those who hear the message. Our message is powerful, it's cosmic, it's significant, yet it doesn't protect us from harm. The mission is bittersweet, verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some uh, from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial, a great scandal in antiquity. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. We promote the most glorious message imaginable. God has given himself for you, so you can spend eternity with him forgiven. Beautiful. But anyone who genuinely lives by it, any church that does all that it can to to bear testimony to it, will suffer. And that's what these images are. And when we suffer, all we need to know is that God's faithful witnesses will be vindicated, just as the Jesus of our gospel was raised, verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Underline that, unless you have a pew Bible. Gave glory to the God of heaven. It's possible this just means on the last day. People will give glory to God because they'll see that Jesus was raised and God's people are vindicated. But there's an interpretation that fits much better with the flow of all of this. It's more likely to be the answer to the implicit question that runs through this entire interlude of chapter 10 and 11. The question was, what will it take to lead the world to repentance? What does it take? God's people... Bearing testimony and suffering. And that leads the world to finally give glory to God. 
the bittersweet mission of the church, in all of its power and all of its suffering, is what leads the world to give glory to God. And only then, at the completion of the mission, is the seventh trumpet sounded and the kingdom comes in full. Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the Dark Mofo art installation down in Hobart. Four 20-meter-high inverted crosses, painted red, so you won't miss them. Uh, I'm down in Hobart next week, so I'll go and check them out and see what the vibe is. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I said I was quite pleased with how churches down in Tasmania were coping, uh, that yeah, some were freaking out, but um, most were just, you know, brushing it off as silly, but no big deal. Um, unfortunately, uh, during the week, a good friend of mine from Hobart, a Christian leader down there, uh, sent me uh, what I think was in the Hobart Mercury. Uh, the, the Christians have galvanized, they've got 17 thousand signatures together and according to this article they were demanding that the installations uh, be pulled down immediately and the argument according to the article was this is our sacred symbol how dare you mock Christians we wouldn't do that to other religions some are saying try that with Islam and see what happens But all of that surely misses the point. Our symbol, the cross, is consciously mockable. It is is God himself at the lowest, cruelest, most shameful point. It's not ever meant to be beautiful. The fact that God went to a cross doesn't beautify the cross. It tells us how much God loves us, that he would debase himself for us. To turn the cross into something beautiful, sacred, something that society has to respect and honor is actually to lose the meaning of the cross. Which is precisely that God went to the most shameful part of earth. If we start saying, oh, the cross is very precious, beautiful, sacred, lovely, and then we say, and God went there, huh, well, what's the big deal? And who cares that we wouldn't mock Muslims in the same way? Really, who cares? What's it got to do with anything? Muslims aren't the ones who believe that God loves his enemies so much he entered the world and died on a cross for them. Muslims aren't the ones who follow a teacher who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, turn the other cheek, pray for those who mistreat you. That's the peculiar measure of the gospel. That's the radical outlook of the Christian. You know, frankly, any Christian who condemned this installation without praying for the installers isn't living by the gospel they claim to hold. 
I really wonder how many of the 17,000 signatures actually stopped and said, Lord, please be merciful to the, the people who put this together. Whatever you know, their issues with Christianity, would you help them resolve? I, I wonder how many. I'm sure some did. But sometimes I really feel like saying, maybe not to us, well, maybe to us, Western Christians need to get a grip, need some perspective. Our mission is not standing up for our rights or demanding respect for our symbols and traditions. That's not the Christian mission. The Christian mission is simply to bear witness to the crucified Lord and bear whatever suffering comes. Bear witness to the crucified Lord and bear whatever suffering comes. And so I can't resist closing by quoting, once again, the very contrasting words of Ignatius. Himself martyred in Rome within a year of these words. Writing at precisely the time Governor Pliny was torturing two deaconesses and killing others. And Ignatius says... Pray continually for the rest of humankind as well, that they may find God, for there is hope of their repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters. And let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. That's our mission. To bear witness to the crucified Lord Jesus and bear whatever hardship follows. And so we pray, Lord, give us ears to hear help us as a church and as individuals to be about your business to go out into the world with the gospel, that bittersweet scroll. Help us, Lord, to bear witness to Jesus and to suffer anything as a result. Father, change our hearts. Empower us by your Spirit. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, crucified, Raised again. Amen.